You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. At that time, Yahweh said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain, and make an ark of wood, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, and cut two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets, in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that Yahweh had spoken to you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And Yahweh gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as Yahweh commanded me. The people of Israel journeyed from Beroth to Benijakan to Mazarah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried, and his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gadgodah, and from Gadgodah to Jatpata, a land with brooks of water. At that time, Yahweh set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, to stand before Yahweh, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. Yahweh is his inheritance, as Yahweh your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountains, as at the first time, forty days and forty nights, and Yahweh listened to me that time also. Yahweh was unwilling to destroy you, and Yahweh said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet Yahweh set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt." You shall fear Yahweh your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons, and now Yahweh your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Lately I've been, I've been losing sleep 
dreaming about the things that we could be. But baby, I've been, I've been praying hard. Said no more counting dollars, we'll be counting stars. Yeah, we'll be counting Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 657. Today is Saturday, July 8th, 2023. That was a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 10. And there's lots here. There really is. There's a lot that is familiar if you've been listening for some time now, as we went through the earlier books of the Pentateuch, we're now in the last of the five books known as the Pentateuch. We've covered Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and now we're in Deuteronomy. And here we have Moses saying a very similar thing to what the prophet Micah says. What does the Lord require of you? He asks. What does the Lord require of you? And that's an odd question that most of us are really just not comfortable with. We are not familiar with this idea of God requiring something of us. Does God require anything of us? He certainly did require something of the people of Israel here. And then also when you come to the prophet Micah, as I said, you have him asking the question as well. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? What does Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Does God still require these things of us? That's a big question. That's an open question. That's a lingering question that many American Christians today, I think, struggle with when it's even posed to them. In the context of Deuteronomy chapter 10, the answer is to fear Yahweh, your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. That's the answer in the context of Deuteronomy 10. And does none of that apply anymore? If we are in Christ, well, let's go one by one. Let's go through each one of these items and let's ask, how about fearing Yahweh, our God? Should we fear God? Is that applicable? Is that still pertinent to us today? I would say yes. I would say the answer is yes. We are supposed to still fear Yahweh, our God. Take, for instance, 1 Peter 2.17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Yes, that still applies. We are supposed to still Fear God, man. How about walking in all his ways? Are we supposed to walk in all of God's ways in the New Testament, in this age, if we are Christians, if we are in Christ? Are we supposed to walk in all his ways? Briefly, consider John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you have this idea of Jesus being the way. Are we supposed to walk in the way of Jesus? Clearly, yes. Consider also in the book of Romans or the letter to the church at Rome. Let us walk properly 
as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. That's chapter 13, verse 13. Chapter 14, verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. How about chapter 6, verse 4? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In fact, there are 94 references to walking in the New Testament. Not all of them are in this metaphorical sense, but plenty of them are. For another couple of examples, Philippians 3.17, and then also the very next verse, verse 18, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. But there's an alternative, verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, which is to say, Walking is a metaphor for your general manner of life, how you go to and fro, how you live. So are we supposed to walk in all his ways still? Clearly, definitively, yes, that still applies. What does the Lord require of us? He requires us to walk in all his ways still. How about to love him? Should we love God? That one's easy. Yes, again, If the Lord requires us to love him, that still applies in the New Testament. That doesn't go away. That doesn't cease to be applicable. Consider 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also Oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So, should we still be loving God? Are we still required to love God? Yes. Yes, very clearly. The contrast, the or else, is not that you feel nothing, it's that you love yourself, you love pleasure, you love money, you love to be honored by men, you love conceit. The alternative to being a lovers of God type Christian is you're not a Christian at all. So yes, that's still required. It's required of us as it was required of Israel. How about serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Is that still applicable? Does God require us to serve him? In the New Testament? Well, I don't know. There's only 934 instances of the word servant in the English Standard Version, Old Testament and New Testament, and 778 of those are in the Old Testament. Only 156 are in the New Testament. But, you know, 156, that's still quite a few. That's still a lot of references. 
That's still 44 in the gospel according to Matthew, 9 in Mark, 37 in Luke, 14 in John, 11 in Acts. And that's before we even get to the epistles. When we get to the epistles, we start finding things like Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Romans 13, which we talk about quite a lot on this podcast, refers to the civil authority as God's servant. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, Romans 13, 4. But then we also get passages like in 1 Corinthians 3, 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as Yahweh, as the Lord assigned to each. We also get passages like Galatians 1.10, where Paul asks, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So we see this again and again throughout the New Testament epistles. It's not just in reference to people who are servants of other people. No, no, especially the idea is that we are to be servants of Christ. We are to be servants of God. If we're serving God, we will also be serving the brotherhood. We will serve, yes, our families as well, especially the members of our own household, but we will be servants of our fellow saints. We'll be servants of others who don't know Christ in such a way as to reflect well on our master who came as a servant in the gospel accounts. So all of that is to say, I think, very definitively, and somebody can argue the point with me if they'd like to, the idea that Yahweh our God requires of us things like God required things of Israel is very relevant, and it's important for us to keep it in mind. God does require us to fear him, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him with all our heart and with all our soul. And yes, he does, by the way, tell us to keep commandments and statutes as well. And maybe they're not, right? Maybe they're not what they were for Israel. That's correct. You're right. We are not still engaged in the sacrificial system. That's been fulfilled. We are not inhabiting Israel if we are Gentiles in, let's say, the United States of America. This is not Israel. We're not Israelites. But even there, what is the Great Commission? Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not just go and tell people who Jesus is and tell them to trust with a kind of faith that does not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. No, no. He says the Great Commission is go, that's a command, make disciples, that's a command, baptize them, that's a command, teach them, that's a command, but to observe all that I have commanded you. Observe all that I have commanded you, which is to say Christ issued commands and he has the authority to do so. And he has the authority to require that we obey those commands, not that we be hearers of the word only and so deceive ourselves, as James says. So again, again, I say, yes, this is still applicable. And we see something of the constants of God, which 
if we have a dividing line between Old Testament and New Testament that disregards the Old Testament, sees it as irrelevant, not for today at all. If we don't read it, we will miss the incredible consistency and the unchangeable immutability of God. He is the same. He is not becoming God. He is not growing into the role. He's not maturing. He's not learning. He's not acquiring new attributes. No, no. He reveals himself. Sometimes our understanding maybe changes over time as we grow in our faith. But God's character, we will find as we grow, has been consistent forever. And it will always be consistent. And that is very comforting if we embrace it instead of arguing against it. Because some of the things he has done, some of the things he's commanded to have done, some of the things he's promised he will do are difficult or hard to understand or, yes, at times unpleasant where discipline is concerned. It'll be far better. There is far more joy that is set before us in embracing these things. And that is why we persevere. That is why we press on. That is why we love him. That is why we fear him. That is why we obey him. Let's do get into some news items, though. And I'll explain a little bit of why I think it is that we are uncomfortable so many times with the idea of God requiring anything of us in our day, as well as maybe one of the effects. This could be a cause and an effect all at the same time, insofar as there's been a paradigm shift in the last century or so in the United States of America. There's been a paradigm shift with regards to requirements. I would draw your attention to an article over at the Billings Gazette by Joshua Murdoch titled Conservation License Required to Use State Lands. In this article, there is an explanation, which I won't get into in depth, but an explanation that whereas it's been typical for hunters and fishermen to have to get a license to hunt or fish on public lands or maybe anywhere, you could say, where that's been more typical and we've grown accustomed to that, they are changing the requirements to use public lands or to even access public lands for any purpose whatsoever. If you want to put a tube or a kayak or a canoe in at a state fishing access site, or if you want to picnic or camp at a fishing access site, for instance, you're going to have to get a conservation license. Also, you'll have to get a conservation license now, if you want to hike, run, mountain bike, ride a horse, or a motorized vehicle on state trust lands and in wildlife management areas, licenses are valid for one year beginning March 1st, and they're not expensive. They're $8 if you are a state resident, $10 for non-residents. But here, my problem being a native of Montana being originally from Glendive, Montana, my ancestors having come out and homesteaded. My problem with this is that these lands are said to be public lands. And when you charge people to do anything on them whatsoever, it doesn't really feel like they are public lands so much. It feels a little bit like a bait and switch. And as much as I could say about that, and I would love to do a podcast episode at some point, talking more about 
the Homestead Act and how I think we should revive that, especially with the affordability problem regarding homes in America today. As much as I would love to talk more about that right now, I want to key in on just the fact that this is a requirement. There are requirements everywhere you look in American society. Corporations have requirements. Various activist groups and political parties are constantly proposing new requirements. State and local governments each have their own sets of requirements. The federal government has a mind-boggling number of requirements. We have requirements everywhere we look. And the explicit expectation is you will obey, you will obey, you will obey. When you come to the time of the year that we have just passed through, and it's not even a week old, the 4th of July, Independence Day, you are expected to love your country. You're expected to fear the power of the U.S. government, and most people do. Most people around the world do fear the power of the federal government here in the United States of America. You're expected to walk in all of the ways of an American by many patriotic Americans. But my point in bringing all of this up is when a nation has turned its back on God and forgotten God or disobeyed God or made a conscious effort to go whoring after the gods of the nations, any and all gods except Yahweh God, it looks stranger and stranger to the Christian who is familiar with the history of this country and this people to fully participate and to abide by all of the statutes, all of the requirements, all of the commands. It gets stranger and stranger, the idea of loving this country and fearing this country even more to the point, because it gets to feeling more and more like we would have a kinship with Christians in ancient Rome under persecution because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't take part in the cult of the emperor. Because Christians insisted steadfastly, not stubbornly, steadfastly, that Jesus is Lord, Christians were persecuted in many, many ways. They were harassed. They were maligned. They were mocked. They were jeered at. They were thrown to lions. They were sawn in two. They were crucified. They were beheaded. They were scourged. They were fined. They were thrown out of their houses. They were removed from positions of public authority. In short, the America of today that is merely secular and liberal, as we talked about in our last episode, which is subscriber only, if you want to listen to it before August 1st, you'll have to pay 99 cents a month. It's not much. I don't ask much, but 99 cents a month, I think is a fair token of appreciation if you want to be subscriber only. But in a merely or even doggedly, stubbornly secular and liberal America, increasingly Christians can relate to the saints in ancient Rome. Increasingly, the kinds of things that were said about Christians in ancient Rome are said about Christians today. Increasingly, the kind of harassment that Christians in the Roman Empire faced because they were Christians face Christians in the United States of America because they are Christians. And some people, they are uncomfortable with that possibility that 
history would come full circle in terms of a hostility that the outside world, the non-Christian world, the powers and principalities, as Paul writes about them, that we struggle against, we do struggle against them, would strike back and try to oppress or suppress or even put to death Christians in this country. But I don't actually want to dwell on that so much as I want to pose the question, why? Why do we recoil so easily and get into quibbling and arguing about words, quarreling about words? Why do we so easily do that as Christians in the United States of America today when it comes to the idea of God requiring something of us? But we're so ambivalent about the U.S. government or our state government or our local government requiring any number of things of us. Why do we resist? Why do we bristle at the idea that God would require us to fear him, but we think nothing at all of our government requiring us to fear the power of our government? Isn't that backwards? Shouldn't it actually be we easily give ourselves over to the requirements of God, we see them actually as true liberation, as opposed to the pseudo-liberation, the false liberation that the left promises, the secularists, the godless promise. Shouldn't it be that we easily give ourselves over to the requirements of God, to the statutes and the commands of God, to the fear of the Lord, but then to the love of the Lord? Shouldn't it be that we easily give ourselves to that and that we would want our countrymen to do likewise? Shouldn't it be the case that we actually are more skeptical of whether there's any reason to fear our government or love our government for that matter in the way we would love God? Shouldn't we be more skeptical of the ever longer list of requirements and statutes that come from an overbloated bureaucracy that's arbitrary because it's abandoned in so many cases, the principles of America's founding in favor of the principles of the French Revolution, shouldn't we be more skeptical of even an $8 license to access public lands in the state of Montana? Shouldn't we be more skeptical of that and not at all skeptical of the idea that Christ would command us? I think so. Consider a piece published by Not the Bee Staff highlighting a tweet by Alibeth Stuckey This one from the 4th of July, by the way, and this is not irrelevant to celebrating Independence Day. Allie Beth Stuckey writes, I see conservatives object to being called things like transphobe. They'll defend themselves, saying transphobia means fear, and I'm not scared of trans people. I just don't believe men should go in women's bathrooms, etc. Well, one, defending yourself against their accusations and name-calling is wasted time. The proper response isn't, no, I'm not. It's, I don't care. Two, we actually should fear. We should fear men going into women's bathrooms. We should fear for the female prisoners forced to be incarcerated with men, many of whom have raped women. We should fear for the rape victims forced to share space in abuse shelters with men. We should fear a world in which girls are forced to suppress their instincts and smile as males infiltrate their sororities, teams, and locker rooms. And yes, aversion too. 
We should have a strong aversion toward men trying to breastfeed babies. We should be averse to the idea that female is a costume to be donned or an identity to declare. These fears and aversions are healthy and logical. What they aren't is irrational. This is why transphobe isn't accurate, because phobia is an irrational fear or aversion, but the fear and aversion felt in this case are extremely rational. Whether you believe that we're a product of evolution and we have the instincts we do because they were passed down from our ancestors to help us survive, or whether you know, as I do, that we were given by God the ability to discern obvious, observable truths like the differences between male and female, the fear and aversion people have to men trying to be women and enter their spaces are innate and understandable. This doesn't mean people who are confused about their gender are any less inherently valuable than anyone else. They're made in the image of God like the rest of us, in need of Christ like the rest of us. I feel such pain in hearing the stories of detransitioners who were victims of manipulation and negligence, and I rejoice when they hear the good news of the gospel and believe. But the insistent denial of reality, particularly at the expense of women and girls, is a thing to be feared and disdained. We can and should hold all these facts in mind at the same time. Call it transphobia or whatever you want, but it's the truth. And I quote... Ali Beth Stuckey, most of that's great. One thing I would push back on a little bit here is the idea that folks who have transitioned, as they say, are victims. Some, perhaps, yes. Children, yes. But there is a personal sin that needs to be repented of that has to do with transgenderism. Just like there is a personal sin that has to be repented of it has to be confessed and repented of, but we have to call it sin if we're going to call people to repent of it. We have to call it sin instead of victimhood when people engage in the homosexual lifestyle. It is sin. They are sinning. They are doing what is evil according to God. And you could say, oh, but that's not going to be well received. Yeah, you know what? That ship has sailed, folks. That ship is over the horizon and out of sight. It sailed so long ago. We need to call those who have given themselves over to transgenderism and homosexuality and bisexuality and queerness to androgyny and cross-dressing. We need to call these people to repentance because they have sinned. They have sinned. If others have sinned against them also, we should call those people to repentance. But the big idea is not to look for ways to feel sorry for people as though their victimhood is the precondition to engaging with them, as though their victimhood is the prerequisite for our speaking up. There are victims, yes, but I would say the victims in many of the cases that Ali Beth Stuckey is referring to, the victims are the girls and women who are being told you must, you are required to share this private space, this restroom, this locker room, this shower, this housing with a man. For example, let's consider a bit of reporting over at the Daily Wire by Hank Berrien, July 5th. Philly alleged mass shooter identified as cross-dressing BLM supporter. The suspect, 40, issued social media posts supporting Black Lives Matter and also posted photos on Facebook of himself wearing a bra, a women's top, and earrings with his hair braided long, the New York Post reported. He also posted messages such as, quote, how do you know if an evil spirit is following you, end quote, and a photo of a map listing 
black massacres across the United States captioned, quote, we kept the receipts, end quote, the Daily Mail reported. Looking at the photographs here in the embedded tweet from Bo Snurdly, all I can say is this guy looked like he was possessed. And that might actually have been the case. That might really be why he carried out this mass shooting 8.30 Monday night, armed with a rifle, pistol, extra magazines, a police scanner, and a bulletproof vest. Police found dozens of shell casings in an eight-block area. Victims of Monday's shooting have been identified as Lashid Merritt, 20, Demir Stanton, 29, Ralph Morales, 59, Daujan Brown, 15, and Joseph Wama, Jr., 31. Now, I don't mean to be stereotypical here, but those don't sound like white people names. Those sound like they were probably black folk. As a matter of fact, those names sound like he just added to the list of black massacres that he was keeping a map of. Curious, right? Curious. Is that guy who was the cross-dressing BLM supporter, is that guy the victim here? Or are the people he shot and killed victims? It's not complicated. The transgendered persons may sometimes be victims themselves, but they have personal sin that they need to repent of, and we need to call them to repent of it. And we need to call it sin and not just say that there's sin all around it. No, no. They need to repent of their particular specific sins in being transgendered. That is sinful. That is wicked. That is disobedient to God. They need to repent if they are engaged in a homosexual lifestyle. Yes, maybe they were victims of trauma. Yes, maybe they were manipulated into a homosexual lifestyle. Sure, call the people that sinned against them to repent as well, but they need to repent of their homosexual lifestyle, plain and simple. And no, that's not an irrational fear. I agree with Ali Beth Stuckey there. It's not an irrational fear that folks who have made it their mission to declare war on the commands of God, the requirements of God, may at times become violent. That's not an irrational fear. The statistics bear that out, as a matter of fact. Next up, speaking of statistics, I'm going to play for you an Instagram video that was sent to me by my cousin Brent. And this one very much bears a close relationship to everything we've been talking about from the standpoint of mothers and fathers, fathers in particular, being engaged in the business of raising their children, teaching their children, disciplining their children, providing for their children. Here it is from an Instagram account titled at Alpha Dog Millionaire. Here's cut one. Take a listen. The more opportunities a child has to interact with biological fire, the less likely they are to commit a crime or have contact with a juvenile justice system. Okay, another way to say that is men and women who are incarcerated, the population of the prisons mostly encompass fatherless homes. Now, here's something that no one else has mentioned, which I think is cool, and I, I don't really say this eloquently. If a, um, if a man and wife raise a child, they're less likely to end up in jail 
but they have the same statistical chance as children raised by just their father. So if we want to keep children, adults, out of prison, mother, father, or just father. Well, we don't want to hear just father, so let's try to keep the families intact. Okay, how could this be, right? Fascinating, right? If the statistics bear out that actually a father raising his children by himself has the same impact as the father and mother with regards to incarceration rates and others, other ills of society. Why don't we hear more about that? Why is it that the welfare state incentivizes actually so often single mother homes where the mom is the only one in the picture? Curious, right? Very curious. But on a related note, stepping back from our American context for just a little bit, I'll draw your attention to a tweet by Davy Jones from July 6th, posted over at Not The Bee by Joel Abbott. Watch people's reactions in Galloway, Ireland, when they learn the popular boy's name in their city for 2022 was Mohammed. Here it is. Cut to take a listen. Can you guess what the most popular boy's name was in Galway in 2022? No idea. Was it Jack? Tommy? I'd say for his public, Connor. Let's say David. I think it was Sean, was it? Uh, Jack. 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 Kian. 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 Yeah. Peter? No. Patrick. I don't know. Um, no, maybe that's like the most Irish name. Most popular? I don't know. Dave, maybe? Not a clue. Not a clue. Uh, I'm guessing it was not a traditional Irish name. Richard. Richard. It was not Richard. Was it? Oh, f- Didn't see that coming. It wasn't Richard. No. Would you like to know what it was? Yeah. Right, uh, I'll, I'll let you try and answer it first. I'd say there. Jack. I'd say uh, Mohammed. <laughs> You're correct. What? <laughs> right. According to the CSO in 2022, the most popular boy's name in Galway was Mohammed. Oh, yeah. I, I, I read that somewhere, yeah. Okay. Wasn't expecting that, but okay. <laughs> wow. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Do you want to know what it was? Yeah, actually. It was Mohammed. Mohammed? Oh my god, yeah, it was Mohammed. I knew that actually. <laughs> oh. It wasn't Mohammed. In Galway! Mohammed! Oh, okay. Do you want to know what it was? Yes, please. It was Mohammed. Okay. Okay. You're surprised. Really? In Ireland? in Ireland? Well, that's crazy, yeah. In Galway? Crazy. Not in Ireland. Oh. In Galway. That's weird. Does that surprise you? Very interesting, yeah. Really? That's surprising. Muhammad is the most common, huh? And what do we say about that, ladies and gentlemen? Well, the final paragraph for Joel Abbott's post puts this very succinctly. Europeans are realizing 
this fact about 30 years too late, thinking this was about skin color when it was always about theology. It was always about theology that many Europeans objected to the mass importation of Muslims from the Middle East and from North Africa. It was always about theology. It was always about culture downstream of theology because what's downstream of culture? Politics. And the politics are going to change dramatically for Europe. Douglas Murray's book, The Strange Death of Europe, is one you should check out if you want to know more about this business. But I bring it up in relation to the previous clip talking about when a father is in the picture, when a father is involved in his children's lives, what that does for statistics. How do you think it came to be that the most popular name in Galway, Ireland, was Muhammad? That came to be because the fathers are Muslim. The fathers are Muslim, and it doesn't really matter so much what ethnicity or what religion or what culture their wives come from because Muhammad is a very popular Muslim name. And so the father is going to decide, this is what my son is going to be named. Even if he consults his wife, the mother of his child, he's still going to be the one who makes the decision. And we know that, right? He will make the decision to consult her. He will make the decision to negotiate with her, or he will make the decision to say, this is what it is. This is what the child will be named. Well, so also, you scale up the decision of fathers who are Muslims, who are having children when the Irish are not having children, and maybe they should take a look at that. Maybe they should rethink how many kids they're having and how many Muslims they're importing and who their daughters are marrying because this is colonization. Europe is being colonized, not just Ireland. France is on fire right now because of this very thing. But here in the United States of America, our social ills are not the result of bad genetics. They're the result of bad choices, as in choices by men to not be involved in the lives of their children. What was said of John the Baptist, that he would turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. That's how you bring about national revival. And if you don't have that, if you don't have fathers involved, except possibly, maybe, maybe to fertilize an egg at the beginning of the process, and then they check out, what you will have is mental illness, criminality, substance abuse, every kind of disorder, poor work ethics, violent crime in particular, but crime of all sorts. What you will have is a breakdown of a society until some other culture where the fathers are involved, are engaged, comes in to take its place and fill the vacuum. But let's go back to the Daily Wire for a moment. And a report by Joseph Curl, published July 6th, titled, Least Affordable Motor Market in Modern History, Just 8% of New Cars Cost Less Than $30,000. That is down 38%, he says. 38% from before COVID in 2020, 38%. If you're looking to get a new vehicle and you want to be responsible, you're trying to balance your budget, it is more difficult than ever to do so thanks to 
our current economic conditions, thanks to inflation, thanks to regulatory burdens, thanks to taxes, thanks to supply chain disruptions that are still rippling across not just our national economy, but the world's economies. Why I bring this up is because as a father, I have sons who are now teenagers and I am counseling them on what they are going to do with the last few of their teenage years or the last several of their teenage years. What will they learn? What will they try to get a job doing so they can get some experience, get some exposure, develop a resume that allows them to provide for themselves and a family of their own someday? Vehicles being more expensive puts a greater restriction on them being able to get their first job and go back and forth to and from it to our home instead of mom having to take them and drop them off, dad having to take them and drop them off. That limits the possibilities when vehicles are more expensive. For that matter, when it comes to our family upgrading or renewing, refreshing our family van that we go to church with, that we go to the store with, that we go every now and then on trips to hang out with friends or to see the mountains in, our options for being able to trade in our 2012 Ford E350 for a newer 15-passenger, because we're expecting our ninth child in November, our options are constricted because of these forces, these influences in the economy. These are realities which need to change. These are dynamics and factors that need to be dealt with. But again, I bring it up because there are requirements on these car companies and there are requirements for many jobs and for many living situations. There are requirements that we have grown accustomed to and that we don't challenge or question. But by golly, we're told to question at every turn whatever God would require of us or if somebody would say God requires anything of us. If we would be inconvenienced at all, boy, howdy, Oh, we will go on and on and on about how difficult it is. But we have been conditioned, especially in the American church, to not question requirements from, let's say, the EPA or California's Air Regulatory Board, which sets the standards for a very large portion of the United States with regards to internal combustion engine vehicles, with regards to emissions requirements, they can, if they're not opposed, if they're not objected to, they can make it cost prohibitive for you to have a vehicle for your teenage son or daughter that is going to be safe, reliable, attractive, holistically functional, but dignified. And why is it that we just accept that as a matter of course, that we don't get into that as Christians, but also too... (laughs) At the same time, the government can require anything it wants, and we just go back to Romans 13, and we read, be subject for the Lord's sake, be subject, be subject, be subject. But when it comes to the Lord requiring things more broadly of us, and actually Christ being Lord and us acting like it, living like it, walking in the way, ooh, wait a second, what what is this, right? What is this? You shouldn't be imposing your morality on me. You shouldn't be talking about works, faith, faith, grace, grace, 
Try that with the civil authorities. See how it goes. It gets better, though. It's not just vehicles. It's not just vehicles. It's also homes. Commodore Vanderbilt, not his real name, I trust, over at Not the Bee, posted also July 6th. Bidenomics, if you spend $400,000 on a house today, you'll end up spending over $1 million with interest. Come see how great your parents had it in comparison. And here, if you scroll on down, you'll see some stats, some figures, some of which are not even all that old, right? Some of this talk is of how good it was in the 90s, what the median income was in proportion to the cost of a new home or a gently used home in many parts of the country. But even just going back to 2021, a $600,000 house with a 3% interest rate would yield you a $2,024 a month mortgage payment, according to their visualizations over here at not to be a $590,000 house. So coming down slightly, right? Coming down slightly because the interest rates have gone up so much with a 7% interest rate will cost you $3,140 a month for the mortgage. Keep in mind, they point out your real weekly wages are also only $51 more than someone in 1990, $312 in 1990 versus $363 in 2023. Desperate for homes, Vanderbilt writes, young people are buying up 70-year-old remodeled homes with leaky basements in the $200,000 to $300,000 range, locking themselves into slightly less crippling debt on a house that might need some major TLC in the years to come. Just a few years ago, in what the Biden administration calls the dark times of the bad orange man, a couple could get the same older home for less than $150,000 at 3% interest. And here we have a reminder of the World Economic Forum tweet from November 19th, 2016. A man smiling. He loves socialism, apparently. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy based on the input of members of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Councils. This is how our world could change by 2030. Their tweet caption read, again, again, When it comes to requirements from the government, even from organizations like the WEF, who aren't even our government, (laughs) the WEF is not our government in any way, shape, or form, period. They are not our government. You don't have to listen to them. You don't have to do what they say. You don't have to follow their recommendations. Tell them to go away. Be quiet. We don't want to hear it. Yes, tell them to shut up enough. But what do we do? We take more seriously the projections and the requirements that such projections depend on you obeying. We take more seriously when the WEF even requires something of us than we do in many cases when God would require something of us, when Christ would require something of us. That's dangerous. That's terribly, terribly dangerous, especially if We're going to get more and more of the same. We really have to know what we're about with where we're headed. But it's profitable, right? It's profitable. It's lucrative. And, you know, if somebody requires that we obey the government, that's in the Bible, right? 
I mean, we should be able to trust doctors too. I mean, they're not your government, of course, but you you should be able to trust government and doctors and academics and I'm sorry, what was I saying? Corp- corporations and the news media. Wait, who who all am I supposed to be submitting to? Who who all is supposed to be requiring things of me and manipulating and cajoling me into fulfilling their every arbitrary will and whim? Who who all? Well, for one, in some people's minds, Pfizer would make the list. Spencer Lindquist over at the Daily Wire published another piece, July 6th. There are so many of these pieces that are a couple of days old because I saw them and I threw them in an open browser. I saved the tabs for this very day, this very moment, this very hour. (laughs) Pfizer-sponsored group Pushing Child Transgenderism Profits from Puberty Blockers, Hormone Therapy. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go and check it out for yourself. But let me just propose to you that a lot of this right now is being pushed because some very evil people want money and they want power. And they have a lot of it, but they want more. In fact, they want all the money and all the power. And they're willing to do anything and say anything in order to get all of the wealth and power that they want. If God requires things of you, you might just find out in some cases that you're rescued from the predations, from the predatory behavior of certain nefarious godless people in the process of walking in the way that God has set out for you. You might just find it's not so burdensome and it's not so restrictive and you're not being held back from a good time so much as being protected from destruction, protected from being defrauded. It might just be that you need to fight harder to follow the requirements that God has for you and to question some of the requirements other people put forward that are competing requirements. It might just be you need to fight harder if you want to do well, if you want there to be a blessing. And yes, I do think there are blessings in this life They're not absolute. They're not final. They're not anything compared with the blessings we have in store for us in eternity future. But I do believe that there are blessings for obedience and there are curses and there is punishment for disobedience in this life. Why? Because God's character hasn't changed. And because that's what God tells us, Old Testament and New Testament. He puts requirements on us, Old Testament and New Testament, And there are consequences for whether we follow those requirements or we don't, Old Testament and New Testament. How would it be if you locked yourself into a mode of thinking, a mode of life, wherein you just follow whatever the FDA requires, and behind the scenes, Pfizer is bribing the regulators and the public health officials, donating huge amounts of cash to certain politicians, How would it be if a lot of these guys have gotten so wealthy that now they want to go the rest of the way, they've convinced themselves they are gods, and now they want to try it, right? They want to try to play God on a global scale. How would it be if you're locked in a mindset of just doing whatever they require of you and running from the requirements of God, and it's actually your destruction that they have in view if that's what it takes for them to feel the godlike power they've grown accustomed to. 
is actually theirs. This is the perfect segue, in all honesty, to the main attraction, the main article I'd like to talk with you about in this episode, a certain How I Evolved on Tim Keller by James R. Wood, published at First Things in their May 2022 issue. A brief word about James R. Wood. The American conservative has a short bio on him, listing him as assistant professor of theology and ministry at Redeemer University in Ancaster, Ontario. He formerly was associate editor at First Things, a PCA pastor in Austin, Texas, and campus evangelist and team leader with Crew Ministries. His writings have appeared in various academic and popular publications, and they focus primarily on matters pertaining to political theology, ecclesiology, and sacramental theology. Without further ado, I would like to read for you his article at First Things from back when he was an associate editor at First Things. Here it is, How I Evolved on Tim Keller from Beginning to End. He starts out. My family's beloved 13-year-old dog is named Keller. Every day, he serves as a reminder of the ways that a certain Presbyterian pastor in New York City influenced me in the early stages of my faith. I continue to admire him, even if I have turned elsewhere for guidance in our contemporary political moment. If you were an evangelical in America during the 2000s, Tim Keller was a name you couldn't avoid. After completing theological studies at Gordon-Conwell in 1975, Keller accepted a senior pastor position in rural Virginia. There he honed his preaching craft, delivering multiple sermons a week for nine years. In the late 1980s, he decided to plant a church in New York City, which became Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Starting in 1989, with only 50 members, Redeemer eventually drew upward of 5,000 people on Sundays and launched a church planting network that has led to over 800 new churches in cities throughout the world. The late father, Richard John Newhouse, noted in these pages that impressive work was happening in Keller's church. The city-focused church planting movement as we know it today simply would not exist without Tim Keller. More generally, Keller has helped many young people embrace Orthodox Christianity in a culture that made the faith seem strange. Keller has served as a C.S. Lewis for a postmodern world through his public ministry, which began in the 1990s as ministers began circulating his essays on culture and ministry, but which really picked up steam in the mid-2000s when he helped launch the Gospel Coalition and began publishing a steady stream of books. For years, he provided sociological and theological analysis of the late modern city and the secular age, supplying insightful conceptual tools for ministering in these contexts. In his writings and sermons, Keller modeled competence, compassion, and conviction that helped render the claims of the faith more plausible in the eyes of Christianity's cultured skeptics. This was manifest most clearly in his blockbuster book, The Reason for God, and he provided a compelling vision of the core message of the gospel, which he argues avoids legalism on the one hand and egoistic relativism on the other. This is encapsulated in his signature phrase, quote, the gospel says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe and more accepted and loved 
than you ever dared hope, end quote. Keller's winsome approach led him to great success as an evangelist, but he also maybe subconsciously thinks about politics through the lens of evangelism in the sense of making sure that political judgments do not prevent people in today's world from coming to Christ. His approach to evangelism informs his political writings and his views on how Christians should engage politics. For years, Keller's approach informed my views on both evangelism and politics. When I became a Christian in college, both my campus ministry and my church were heavily influenced by Keller's winsome, missional, gospel-centered views. I liked Keller's approach to engaging the culture, his message that, though the gospel is unavoidably offensive, we must work hard to make sure people are offended by the gospel itself rather than our personal, cultural, and political derivations. We must, Keller convinced me, constantly explain how Christianity is not tied to any particular culture or political party, instead showing how the gospel critiques all sides. He has famously emphasized that Christianity is neither left nor right, instead promoting a third-way approach that attempts to avoid tribal partisanship and the toxic culture wars in hopes that more people will give the gospel a fair hearing. If we are to, quote, do politics, end quote, it should be in apologetic mode. I met my wife in 2007, and we fell in love while discussing Reason for God and thinking about how to minister to our non-Christian neighbors. We were married the following year, and I gave all of my groomsmen a copy of Keller's The Prodigal God. It was a no-brainer that we would name our dog after this great man whose ministry had meant so much to us. And for the next few years, we followed Keller's lead by helping plant multiple churches in Austin, Texas, until I decided to pursue a doctorate in political theology after the 2016 election. At that point, I began to observe that our politics and culture had changed. I began to feel differently about our surrounding secular culture and noticed that its attitude toward Christianity was not what it once had been. Aaron Wren's account represents well my thinking and the thinking of many. There was a neutral world, roughly between 1994 to 2014, in which traditional Christianity was neither broadly supported nor opposed by the surrounding culture, but rather was viewed as an eccentric lifestyle option among many. However, that time is over. Now we live in the negative world in which, according to Wren, Christianity and Christian morality is expressly repudiated and traditional Christian views are perceived as undermining the social good. As I observed the attitude of our surrounding culture change, I was no longer so confident that the evangelistic framework I had gleaned from Keller would provide sufficient guidance for the cultural and political moment. A lot of former fanboys like me are coming to similar conclusions. The evangelistic desire to minimize offense, to gain a hearing for the gospel, can obscure what our political moment requires. Keller's apologetic model for politics was perfectly suited for the neutral world, but the negative world is a different place. Tough choices are increasingly before us. Offense is unavoidable, and sides will need to be taken on very important issues. Recent events have proven that being winsome in this moment will not guarantee a favorable hearing. One important example came in 2017, 
when the Kuiper Center for Public Theology selected Keller as the recipient of the Kuiper Prize for Excellence in Reformed Theology and Public Witness. Many students, faculty, and alumni of Princeton Theological Seminary, which is where the Kuiper Center holds its annual conference, protested. Though Keller had spent decades cultivating a thoughtful and compassionate approach to public witness, many simply could not abide Princeton honoring someone who transgresses progressive orthodoxies on sex and gender. The award was rescinded. During the 2016 election cycle, I still approached politics through the winsome model, and I realized that it was hardening me toward fellow believers. I was too concerned with how one's vote might harm the public witness of the church, and I looked down upon those who voted differently than me, usually in a rightward direction. Public witness most often translates into appeasing those to one's left and distancing oneself from the deplorables. I didn't like what this was doing to my heart and felt that it was clouding my political judgment. And I started to recognize another danger to this approach. If we assume that winsomeness will gain a favorable hearing when Christians consistently receive heated pushback, we will be tempted to think our convictions are the problem. If winsomeness is met with hostility, it is easy to wonder, are we in the wrong? Thus, the slide towards secular culture's reasoning is greased. A secular-friendly politics has problems similar to seeker-friendly worship. An excessive concern to appeal to the unchurched is plagued by the accommodationist temptation. This is all the more a problem in the negative world. Keller's third way philosophy has serious limitations as a framework for moral reasoning as well. Too often, it encourages in its adherence a pietistic impulse to keep one's hands clean, stay above the fray, and at a distance from imperfect options for addressing complex social and political issues. It can also produce conflict aversion, and thus it is instinctively accommodating. By always giving equal airtime to the flaws in every option, the third-way posture can also give the impression that the options are equally bad, failing to sufficiently recognize ethical asymmetry. This was on display, for example, in Keller's recent tweet thread on Christian division and politics. Keller was extremely effective as a minister and public theologian in the neutral world. At the beginning of his time in New York, he spent years conducting sociological research by not only reading the best literature of the day, but also surveying residents in the city and hosting Q&A sessions after his sermons. The insights he gleaned from this work were foundational to his ministry, and partly as a result, he enjoyed years of extremely fruitful parish ministry and public writing. Is it too much to expect someone to conduct that same sort of research to adjust to a new moment at a late stage in life, especially when one has experienced as much success as Keller has? Keller was the right man for a moment. To many, like me, it appears that moment has passed. That does not diminish my admiration for the important service Keller provided to the church in America for many years. My family and I wouldn't be the same without him. All right. So there you go. There is the entirety of this piece by James R. Wood over at 
First Things Magazine, published May 6th, 2022. A quick note for those who are not aware, Keller has since this time passed away. And that is unfortunate. That is unfortunate. I have had some very significant critiques of him and his various statements on social justice and how the gospel needs to be apolitical and how Christians, more to the point, need to be apolitical. I've had many critiques of Tim Keller over the years, but it's still a sad thing that he has passed. And for those who greatly admire the man, and I know many people in my own circle who have thought very highly of him, I am sorry that you have lost somebody who was very important to you. On the other hand, I think that How I Evolved on Tim Keller by James R. Wood is entirely correct in one very important respect. Whatever the contributions of Tim Keller when we inhabited what is called neutral world with respect to Christianity, his message of third wayism is very much more clearly, I would say it was out of step even in neutral world, but it is much more clearly out of step at a bad fit now that we inhabit what Wren calls negative world, where Christianity had in previous centuries of American history been met with a positive reception. In fact, it was assumed that you would be a Christian, but a public display, a public remark that was in keeping with biblical faith would be recognized and rewarded and applauded and affirmed and celebrated. Typically, that was the expectation. That was the political economy. In the 90s and the early to mid-2010s, everything shifted to a more overt hostility toward Christians, toward Christian faith. And if I were to speculate as to part of why that is, I would say, in part, the way that Christians like Tim Keller articulated Christianity's effect and relevance in the public space convinced many who were godless or who were hostile to the Christian faith that this was their time. This was their time to rush into the vacuum created as more and more Christians were being convinced by the likes of Tim Keller, to focus on being winsome, to focus on being third-wayers. James R. Wood makes an excellent observation here about the similarities between being seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive and being secular-friendly or secular-sensitive. He makes a very important observation there, and actually I think the secular-friendly message of many liberal denominations and churches and celebrity pastors or denomination heads, I think that secular-friendly message is what has emboldened the woke folk. I think the woke folk, making inroads in the church and in broader society, are in large part the consequence of the secular-friendly folks, just like the seeker-friendly folks, insisting on a certain doctrinal minimalism. Now, when we're talking theology in the proper, in the main, doctrinal minimalism 
means you boil the Christian faith down to the bare essentials. And we don't even really talk about, and I, I know this because Lauren and I, we were very involved in a seeker-friendly, seeker-sensitive church in Hillsborough, Ohio for several years before I moved back to my home state of Montana, moved my wife and our children out to the state of Montana for the first time for them. We were very involved in a Willow Creek affiliate, seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly church. And it was one of the reasons why I wanted to leave. That if you started getting into the details, if you started getting into the particulars, if you started really actually applying biblical truth to the lives of those around you attending church, attending small group, fellowshipping with you, there was an unfriendliness to that because you might make the so-called truth seekers feel unwelcome and unhappy and then they might leave and they might take their tithes and their offerings with them and they might stop volunteering in various ministries because that's what it's about now. The main thing stopped being the main thing when a young college girl in my small group was posting to social media about Lady Gaga's perspective on not needing no man. And I commented and tried to engage in some cordial but honest back and forth, only to be told, you don't need to do that. I knew that the seeker-friendly, seeker-sensitive model was broken when a guy who was on a regular basis being asked to get up and make the announcements on Sunday mornings, occasionally doing other things in the church, but leading a karate ministry in the church, heading up a middle school ministry, was sliding into immorality over and against the warnings and pleadings of his wife, who then spoke to my wife, who then spoke to me, which resulted in me talking to him. And the next thing I know, our training workshops before going into the new building that was being built on the south side of town, our training workshops started involving some rather thinly veiled, as I felt, warnings that maybe this is not the place for me and maybe I need to move along if I'm going to cause trouble. Very similar is the secular-friendly posture towards conservative Christians. And I mean conservative Christians in the sense that J. Gresham Machen was a conservative Christian when he wrote Christianity and Liberalism. I mean conservative Christians also in the sense that a Vody Bauckham would be a conservative Christian. When Vody Bauckham, as part of the SBC, started publicly calling for SBC member churches and individual attendees of those churches to get their kids out of the public schools, to encourage the formation of Christian schools, to encourage more homeschooling, Vody Bauckham was very quickly sidelined whereas he had been a rising star because of why? Because, yes, he's brilliant, very well-spoken. Yes, he is a great preacher, but he's black. And so intersectionality, the SBC leadership was trying to appeal to the secular culture until the guy they had been putting on a pedestal started saying things that might be offensive to the secular culture that might imply we don't approve of what the secular culture around us is doing and we don't want to be a party to it. Then all of a sudden, they couldn't put him off to the side fast enough. All of a sudden, he was embarrassing them. All of a sudden, he was producing the opposite effect 
of what they had put him in that position, put him in that spotlight to do and to accomplish in the first place. So also, with regards to Tim Keller's third wayism, if the big idea in neutral world looked like it was successful, but perhaps just maybe is such a bad fit today in negative world because it's going to make matters worse, I'll be the first one to say, if I don't hear anybody else saying it, I'm assuming I'm the first one to say it, Actually, Tim Keller's third wayism is arguably because of its outsized influence and by the same mechanics that would make it actually more harmful than beneficial. Now, it is arguable that Tim Keller's third wayism and the influence of the Gospel Coalition helped bring us to this moment culturally as a church, at least in the sense of the last few decades. His contributions in Generous Justice, saying he writes social into the margins of his Bible every time he sees the word justice in the biblical text, those are profoundly harmful influences that are still with us today and that many woke Christians are still carrying forward like a torch that he passed them. It's arguable that Tim Keller was a community organizer in church garb and that his primary influence in the American church was not to promote good doctrine with regards to a narrowly defined gospel, but his primary contribution was to promote doctrinal minimalism with regards to sound political theology. And what I mean by that is when it's an election year and a Tim Keller type takes to the op-ed page right before the election— And the choices are Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. The options are Donald Trump or Joe Biden. When a Tim Keller type takes to the op-ed page of a major newspaper and says, don't listen to any Christian pastor or layperson who's going to tell you that the gospel requires you to vote a certain way in this election. That's irresponsible for one thing. And it's just plain wrong for another thing. That Tim Keller was given a pass for it because he was supposedly focused on the gospel as if anybody who disagreed with him was not focused on the gospel, as if to say, yes, we agree, right? We agree that it's an either or. Political theologians are not really all that interested in the gospel and evangelism, in discipleship. They're not really interested in fellowship and unity when that is what was implied so often. And then we came to the pandemic. I think a lot of folks started to have the realization that, wait a second, wait wait a second, this doesn't add up. What what were you saying about third wayism? A whole lot of our countrymen are being thrown out of work. They're having their small businesses destroyed. Their kids aren't able to go to school, or if they do go to school, they have to wear these stupid masks. There's talk about requiring them to get a very experimental, untested, dangerous, it seems increasingly, vaccine that they don't need. And here, the same folks who are telling us it doesn't really matter how we vote in the upcoming election, but it does somehow matter what the secular world thinks of us by our political engagement, except when the secular world happens to be politically conservative, socially conservative. Why, why are you guys telling us we all have to 
follow the quote-unquote settled science? Why are you telling us we have to listen to Francis Collins as though Francis Collins is this paragon of Christian virtue and faith and good practice when more promotion of LGBTQ plus indoctrination happened in his sphere than it happened under any of his predecessors, more abuse of the tissues of aborted babies for so-called research, scientific research, happened under his watch than under any of his predecessors. This guy, this was the one who was being held up as the one we have to listen to. That's your idea of third wayism? That's your idea of political theology? What if this was just a really clever ploy by the enemy of our souls to sideline the church or where there were some who didn't buy into it to keep us so busy just trying to convince one another and stay in fellowship, stay in churches, continue working in ministry together? What if that was the tactic of the enemy here? You know, I think James R. Wood deserves a lot of credit with as much as he thought of Keller, apparently, even to name his dog after Tim Keller, to come out publicly and say, he's not the right man to lead us anymore. His influence, his philosophy, his model is not the right one to lead us anymore. That takes a lot of courage to say, but I think also too, you have to recognize with as much as he thought of Keller, that he was handing out copies of Keller's book to his groomsmen on his wedding day, that he named his family dog Keller, that he met his wife while discussing a Tim Keller book. You have to be ready to accept that James R. Wood maybe is not going quite as far as he should in rejecting and walking away from what Tim Keller was prescribing. It would seem to me, and I mean to be respectful here as I say this, it would seem to me that insofar as the legacy of Tim Keller, his thinking on political issues, political engagement is still with us. If his prescription, his false dichotomy between being engaged politically on the one hand and making disciples, doing missions work, being an evangelist is on the other hand, and you have to pick one. If that way of framing things is still with us, even though he's passed on, it's still with us in the hearts and minds of so many pastors, not just who still read and meditate on what he said, but who are still in positions of authority that he helped to put them into in various organizations that are still very influential, that he built up. If their influence is still with us, and that's part of how we've come to this moment where states are passing laws whereby children are taken from parents if their parents say no to preferred pronouns, so-called gender-affirming care, gender mutilation surgery, puberty blockers, etc. If that has brought us to this moment, I'm not sold on the claim that his model was even a good fit in neutral world. As a matter of fact, I think if you go back, if you go back to the days of J. Gresham Machen, we can see a similar kind of approach, a similar kind of prescription with regards to engagement was proffered up by liberal theologians. And 
Of course, right? Of course, there are more liberal theologians than Tim Keller, to be sure. But how narrowly are we defining what is under Christ's authority? How narrowly are we defining what is the business of a Christian? If we say it really doesn't matter what side you come down on. As James R. Wood points out, the third way philosophy encourages its adherence to a pietistic impulse to keep one's hands clean. But insofar as it also simultaneously insists on a secular-friendly politics, very much like a seeker-friendly politics, and now that we inhabit neutral world's successor, negative world, we see more clearly how being given to accommodation, if we are increasingly secular, then the gospel actually is increasingly a moot point and irrelevant or else counterproductive, anti-science, anti-progress, oppressive, all things that we're hearing that I would say the third wayism opened Pandora's box to. You know, it's all well and good to talk unity, unity, like the president of the lead bishops over the United Methodist Church when he says it's disappointing that they've lost one-fifth of their churches since 2019. It's all well and good to say unity, unity. We're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. We're supposed to be unified. And that's as good as you can come up with to try and keep it together. Maybe, just maybe, you guys really didn't have it together in the first place. Some people are getting wise to that now, but some people have put so much of their own effort, their own attention, their own energy into making it work to this point. It's going to be really hard for them to go the whole way in rejecting what they formerly were adoring. And oh, by the way, I bring this to your attention because I've started reading, finally, Letter to the American Church by Eric Metaxas. And he makes reference to this piece by James R. Wood at First Things. And I think he's exactly right. You should check out Letter to the American Church. I think he's exactly right that what has been accomplished is something like a Chinese finger trap for a lot of pastors, a lot of professors, a lot of Sunday school teachers, a lot of youth leaders, a lot of various other ministry leaders who became addicted to the Gospel Coalition and writings by Tim Keller. They became addicted, and they're not going to easily give up on how complicit that philosophy has been in bringing us to the moment where drag queens are openly grooming children coast to coast, and parents are the ones being investigated and put on terrorist watch lists. Going back to Deuteronomy 10, Briefly, what does the Lord require of you? What does Yahweh your God require of you, Israel? Moses asks, and he doesn't wait. He doesn't give them time. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is known. Fear Yahweh your God. Walk in all his ways. Love him. Serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Keep the commandments and the statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. If the Abraham Kuyper Award was rescinded because there were protests against Tim Keller, and that's the wake-up call for some people because they thought, man, 
by golly, he really deserves that award. Again, I say, how unfortunate is it that we get so upset about our honored favorite teacher not getting an award that we think they deserved? And that has to be our wake-up call. But our brothers and sisters who are conservative in their theology and in their stance on social issues, cultural issues, political issues, when they have been warning us for years, well, you know, come on, you might not even be saved. You know, how can I listen to you? We're going to have to work through this stuff, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to have to because it's going to get worse before it gets better in terms of hostility towards the saints and towards the things of God. And we can't accommodate those who are lost. We don't look to them to judge us, to be clear. Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more so matters pertaining to this life? That's what Paul says. Far be it from us to get it backwards and get it exactly reversed. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.